0: Now, what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is looking into the book of Titus. So, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to the book of Titus. It's toward the end of the New Testament. And in it, we are studying the qualifications for church leaders. And um, as we do that, the passage in front of us this evening focuses on the word called steward or manager. And in light of that, I thought I'd do a little bit of research on different managers that work for important people in this world. So there's a businessman by the name of Mukesh Ambani. There we go. This man, that's his house on the right. He owns the biggest business company Reliance Industries in India by market cap value. He's got 600 employees. He pays them about 30 grand a piece, an average, and you can see his 27-floor house. So wealthy man, you can kind of see the disparity in wealth in that regard, what he pays them versus what um, he owns. And those employees serve him 24-7, covering those 27 floors. Then this one will be familiar to y'all, Beyonce. There she is, and there's her house. She just bought that house with her husband, Jay-Z, The most expensive house ever sold in California, 200 mil. And the second most expensive house sold in America, in in the history of America, Um, I think that was about 230 or 240. So I have no idea how much money they make together. But I know that she pays her project manager 140,000 and the stylist, I'm assuming that's hairstylist or what else does that mean? Yes, somebody was very firm about that answer. Yes. Clothing. Other stuff, whatever that means, Nice um, 90K. That's not bad. And photo editor, 78,000. So that's Beyonce and her relationship with her manager. That's a pretty house, by the way, in case you're not looking at it. That's what you should be looking at. Um, next one, everybody knows. There she is, Taylor. Uh, estimated net worth now because of her Eras tour, 1.1 1. 1 billion. She's only 33, by the way. And so the tour that just ended, is it, did it end? Yes. Did anybody go to it? Yes. One, one or two. It's okay. I'm not judging. I just want to know. It's all right. Okay. I was forced by Stephanie blood to listen to one Taylor Swift song in my life. So I've been there, done that. Moving on to Beyonce next. they made 4.3 billion, which is insane. So she pays her care manager 141,000, her office manager one hundred and eighteen thousand, accountant 85. That guy should have picked a different job. Um, truck drivers, look at that. they make more money than the accountant, 100k in bonuses for the last uh, tour that they supported for her. This man, Brad Pitt, his net worth is 400 mil, uh, allegedly. Uh, he's made over 60 movies and uh, he's, I think, making a movie now or maybe just finished and he's getting paid $30 million for that movie. It's the the most he's ever been paid for any movie. The next picture shows what he bought in 2008. It's this chateau in South France. He paid about 25 million euros for it. Uh, if you, if you kind of like Hollywood gossip, you know that she and, he and Angelina Jolie, his wife, former wife, um, are fighting over this situation. So she sold it without telling him to some <laughs> Russian tycoon, I think, a Russian billionaire, if I remember correctly. And so he's kind of upset about that. So <laughs> they're fighting over this, but it's pretty, right? I, I, I'd want that thing. So Brad Pitt pays his manager $4 million a year, which comes out to about 8000 a week. Not a bad job. Elon Musk, our favorite, $225 billion Estimated value. Let's show him Elon Musk in case somebody doesn't know what he looks like. He's coming soon. So his net worth is 225 bill. Now, his right-hand man is Jared John Burchall. Okay, so he's his money manager. He is um, his fund manager. He also runs one of his companies. I think it says that on the screen. Uh, the company is, uh, well, boring. is The company is the one he's the director of, but then he's the CEO of Neuralink, which is kind of cool. It's, they're trying to figure out computer implants to quadriplegic people. So, you know, Elon wants to change the world entirely everywhere. He wants to populate Mars. Um, fascinating. But this guy is interesting. He's from Modesto. So, yes. One good thing came out of Modesto. Uh, He's he's got 10 siblings, which is wild. Um, He's a Mormon, very faithful Mormon. And his estimated salary is somewhere between one and three million. I know it's a big range, but nobody wants to really tell us how much. But at least a mil, probably more than that. Um, But this guy is supposed to be the fixer. He helped him by Twitter. He's the right hand to Elon Musk. And they've done hundreds of millions of dollars in deals together and all this stuff. So that's Elon's guy. Floyd Mayweather, you guys should know of him. He has the company, The Money Team. Is that right? The Money Team, I think. Yeah. Okay. Are you in it? What's going on here? How do you know so well, Diego? So he's got a record of 50-0 in boxing. Um, his highest boxing match got him 275 million, which is just unbelievable against Conor McGregor. So what was fascinating to me is that he has over 100 cars. There's a couple of pictures of his cars. Um, that's just one garage. He's got a couple dozen properties, I think. And so he just got them scattered all over the place, Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And there's this is a variety of white cars. Um, there was a video, I watched the YouTube video of his car manager. It doesn't, nobody wants to say how much he pays these guys. His bodyguards get about 150 K a year, but, um, there's like a couple minute video. This, the job of the The car guy, he has a full-time job just to wash, maintain, and pull out the cars for Floyd and then put them back in the garage whenever he wants to go somewhere. But the coolest thing was he has to park them so closely to one another because there's too many cars that literally the doors open. Like say the Lamborghini, the right opens up. They're almost touching. There's like um, uh, an inch gap. So it's fun. Google it. Not now, but after the Bible study is over. Uh, It's a fun little video to watch that he makes probably six figures just to uh, take care of his cars. And as you think about these responsibilities for managers, you know that whoever gets to that level with those individuals are super trusted, super competent. So there's authority given to them, but there's also accountability that they have back to the owner, back to their boss. You can just imagine how long it takes to reach the level that the individuals reach, whoever they are that work for these individuals. I get it. Many of them have more managers than one and so on. But the insight is that management in any company has authority and has accountability. There's expectations that your boss has of you for you to perform. When Paul begins to talk about the leaders in the church, he calls them managers of God's house. He calls them God's stewards. It's the same word. In fact, some Bible translations, instead of saying stewards or managers, they actually say managers of a house. Because that's literally the word in the original Greek. So the expectation of church leaders has to be of the pastors, the elders, is that these individuals are in that category. Analogically speaking, they are those who should take care of God's house. And because of that, there are certain expectations that they're to meet as God gives them authority, limited authority to do certain tasks. So let me read for us the passage that we started last week, which was verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And I'll recap quickly last week and then get into part two, the second half of this little paragraph. So we understand exactly what God expects of leaders. Let me read for us beginning in verse five. For this reason, I left you in Crete. That is Paul leaving Titus in Crete. That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, here's the word, manager, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. When we started this passage last week, what I said is that the qualifications that are applied to leaders in the church are not limited to church leaders. Remember, I said that this word for above reproach in verse 6, and then it reappears in verse 7 the same word, actually is applied in 1 Corinthians 1. It it appears again in Colossians 1, and that applies to all believers. In other words, the expectation that Christians are impeccable in the pursuit of holiness, in the pursuit of godliness, that you cannot be impeached, you cannot be brought to court, nobody can bring a charge against you in the way you live your Christian life, that expectation is of every single believer, not just the pastor or the elder. And Paul says, now focusing specifically on the leaders in the church, because as I said last week, the way the leaders act, the standard that they hold to, the expectations that they set of themselves and of the church, ultimately the church will imitate. And you can see that in multiple churches, and you can see that just in life. Consider some of the churches that kind of rose to prominence in the early 2000s, and then some of them fell off. You probably have heard of Mark Driscoll, right? And, you know, it's a horribly sad story. There's a Christianity Today multi-episode podcast on the whole story, the rise and fall of Mars Hill in the Washington State, just outside Seattle, um, but... You look at that, the the pastor himself and the leaders that he attracted around himself, and then the way the church ultimately imitated some of his behavior. And you can see that this principle, principle holds true, that the church leader will set the standard and the pace and the people will imitate and follow. And we don't ever, ever celebrate somebody else's downfall. The Bible tells us not to. But there are lessons that we can learn. And so because of that reality, Paul, wanting to make sure that the churches on the island of Crete live up to a certain standard of holiness and godliness and morality, Paul says, we're going to have to start with the leaders of those churches. And so Paul sends Titus to Crete. There's multiple cities on Crete and says, I want you to establish the right leaders in that church or in those churches. And you have to begin with their families and so Paul says at the very beginning we looked at this last week that the man is supposed to be committed to one wife there's no allowance for polygamy whatsoever in the Christian church if you're not married then you're supposed to be pure and you're supposed to pursue holiness in your relationships with women that's what Paul is saying But then he focuses on having children who believe. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about that last week. That most likely the best interpretation of that statement is to say these are children who, as the end of verse 6 says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, they're compliant. They're obedient. They follow the parents' expectations. They're probably in the Christian community, not outside of it. And they're compliant. I know that there's another... Perspective is that this could also mean they are believers in the church. And people have made that argument. But as we talked about this last week, I tried to make a case that because of the further definition at the end of verse six, and then if you look at 1 Timothy chapter three, there's also the same expectation. And there it says, having your children under control or make sure you manage them well. So there's nothing about expecting believing children in 1 Timothy three. The standard should be the same everywhere in the New Testament. So probably the best way to interpret this is to say this is faithfulness. In fact, if you look down to verse 9, it says holding fast to the faithful word. It's the same word. Faithful children, faithful word. The description of the word of God is that it is trustworthy. It is dependent, dependable rather. So you have children who are compliant, who are trustworthy, who are dependable in the context of family. That's what we ended last week. So Paul focuses on the family and now he transitions to character. So in the next verse, in verse seven, he goes back to the title and says the overseer. back in verse seven five, rather he says elders. verse six, any man. So now we know that elders are to be male in the church. That's why this church and faithful churches through all of, Church history have held that the elders and the pastors are to be male. It's not to say that women are inferior in any way, not intellectually or physiologically or emotionally or morally. That's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. Colossians 3 makes it very clear that everybody is equal. Galatians 3 makes it very clear. Everybody is equal. Both genders are equal before the cross. But there are different roles for men and women. The Bible makes it clear, especially in First Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so here Paul says, look, the elders are to be men. And here are some expectations. In verse 7, he says the overseers. And the idea is this is another word for the same office. Elder or overseer or pastor. They're synonyms in the New Testament. Okay, they're synonymous. There's really no distinction. You don't really have a shepherd who's not a pastor or an elder who's not pastoring. And pastor-shepherd is really the same idea. Okay, so if you've never been introduced to the idea of eldership in the church, not all churches have elders. There are some that only have deacons, which just means to serve. That's the word, deacon, just means to serve somebody. But here we find out that there is an office in the church called the office of an elder or the office of an overseer. And so now moving on to the second category of qualification for these individuals, Is their character, the character of their life. Now, remember, these expectations are not limited to only elders. I made this case last time that these actually are expected of other believers, all believers, elsewhere in the New Testament. So I hope that as you listen to this, you will ultimately begin to reflect on your life and ask yourself, is this true of me? Is this how I live? Is this how I think about my life? And so the first thing in verse 7 that Paul says, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, the manager of God's house. Remember last time I said that in First Timothy chapter 3, Paul makes the same analogy for the elder. And he says this in verse 4 of First Timothy chapter 3. The elder must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? That is to say, prove yourself in the house and then you will enter God's house. That's the analogy. And there you can also lead the people of God. So as we get into this house of God idea, he says, first of all, verse seven, right in the middle, they are not to be self-willed. In other words, they're not to be proud men. There's an antithesis to true pastoral leadership, and that is pride. The church of God should not have proud men leading the church. This meaning, the meaning of this word from the ancient times actually means you are self-impressed. You're satiated with yourself. You're satisfied with yourself. You take great pleasure in yourself. Those are the actual meanings of this word. So you think of narcissism, same thing. That's really the best application of this word is that you're not a narcissist. You're not living for yourself. You're not proud in that regard. The only other time this word appears in the New Testament is in 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 10. And it's important for us to see who it describes in this context. And so, 2 Peter 2.10, verse 1 says false prophets. Okay, so now we know this whole chapter is about false prophets, false teachers, not the true shepherds of God's people. And verse 10 says this. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They despise authority. They are daring. They are self-willed. That's the word here. They're self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They're so arrogant. They're so self-impressed. They think they can accomplish anything. They're so narcissistic that they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. In other words, they don't even recognize that there's a hierarchical difference. In God, angels or demons who are fallen angels, and humans. Now we understand that the human being, the, the person, according to Genesis 1, that is the pinnacle of God's creation, of all creation. Ultimately, we will reign with Christ, it says. We will judge angels, Hebrews says. 1 Corinthians 6 says, rather. It says it very clear in the Bible. But in this context, there, you have to recognize that there is a, a power supernatural power that demons have and angels have that is greater than human power. And so they're so arrogant that they will mock spiritual beings. So the only two places this word appears that has this meaning of self-impressed, self-willed, narcissist, is a pastor shouldn't be that way. And a false pastor is that way. That's the antithesis. So make sure when you say you get a... God moves you away from Grace Church. Your work, your family, life circumstances, whatever happens, you're gone. And you start looking for a new church. If the character of the pastor is pride, self-will, narcissism, you have to walk away. Because of all the things that Paul could have put first, that's what he puts first. When we talk about the character of the individual, These individuals are not fit to lead the church of God. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says this, verses 25 and 27. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They lord over their people. And great men exercise authority over them. It's not supposed to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first will be your slave. And so the expectation is that a true shepherd of God's people becomes a slave of God's people. In Proverbs chapter 26, and in verse 12, this is what it says about the proud. Proverbs twenty-six twelve. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool. Than for him, and if you read Proverbs, you understand that the fool is not a hero in the book of Proverbs. All the warnings are do not be a fool, do not be foolish. And so, understanding the context of Proverbs, if you want to compare a fool that you should never be like and a proud man, trust the fool over the proud man. There's more hope for him, and all the warnings are against fools in the book of Proverbs. That's the contrast that the book of Proverbs sets for us. That's the human interaction that we're talking about so far. How does God look at pride? Well, in James chapter 4, this is what it says about God's response to the proud He gives greater grace, and it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James 4 6 says, God gives grace. To the humble. First Peter five, five says this, younger men, likewise, be subject to your own elders. And the idea here is not younger males. It's a word that actually means younger people. Be subject to your elders. Elders, the context here is pastors. That's verses one through four. And all of you, now everybody, be humble. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah, Chapter 66, and you can hear what verse 2 says. Isaiah 66, verse 2. To this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So if there is a trio or a triad of qualities that God wants to put forward and says, this is the one who will get my attention. This is the one who I'm going to spend time with. The one who's humble, contrite, And who trembles at my word. And those three come together. You're not going to be humble. You're not going to be contrite unless you tremble at the word of God. So God's expectation of the leaders of the church, and of course, by implication, all believers, is that we reject, run away from pride. And we fight narcissism in our lives. And as you know, it pops in, pops up everywhere. It's very, very easy to be more concerned about yourself and the person next to you. Which is why Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, when it talks about interacting with other people, it says, do not only look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have the mindset that Jesus had, who humbled himself to a point of death, even death on the cross. But there the imagery is, do not walk around with a mirror in front of yourselves, always looking at yourself. That's what Philippians 2 says, illustratively. Because that's what a narcissist does. He's got a mirror in front of him all the time. The first qualification for an elder in the church is you're not prideful. Secondly, you're not quick-tempered. You're not easily irritated. This is the only place this word appears in the entire New Testament. It means that you are self-controlled you're not impulsive you're not quick to make judgments so if you're proud then you're easily irritated because things aren't going according to your plan and everything should always go according to your plan so of course you're going to be quick-tempered you see uh, Ephesians 4 26 talks about do not let the sun go down on your anger so there's an element of solve issues with people quickly before you go to bed And I think the reason that Paul talks about not being quick-tempered as a leader is because leaders that are movers and shakers are easily irritated because they're impatient and they want to get things done and time is running out and they got to move. And God uses people both inside and outside the church to change the world. And you can only imagine what Elon Musk is like, right? One of his managers is a Christian, actually Came here when the company was not far away, was a part of this church. And he talked to people like John MacArthur, and I heard the stories about who Elon Musk really is. He's a very, very, very impatient person. And there's some fun stories you can find online or in his biography about it. So there's this typically a pair. That happens, the pairing that happens. You've got a man who's going to change the world and is very easily irritated or impatient. And Paul says, do not be impatient. Do not be quick tempered. Do not be arrogant, which shows up in your demeanor with people. What are you supposed to be like as a Christian leader? Second Timothy two, twenty-four. The Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So the context here is that the Lord's bondservant understands who he's dealing with. We're not just upset at people because they're just people. We understand that when you're dealing with people who are trapped in lies and deception and false doctrine and false religion, or those who are trapped in sin, it's because Satan is working in their lives. In verse 26, they are trapped by the devil. They're being held captive by the devil to do his will. So we understand that there's a supernatural battle that takes place. And so our battle for 2 Corinthians 10.3 isn't against flesh and blood or Ephesians chapter 6. It's against the supernatural. So once you understand that the person in front of you is either under the influence of God or under the influence of Satan, you may treat that person differently. Understanding that it requires prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish something in that person's life. That's why Paul says you have to be patient, kind, able to teach, gentle, 2 Timothy 2. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul divides people into three groups. In verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, literally the lazy or the obstinate. Encourage the faint-hearted, those who are easily discouraged. Help the weak, those who are always just hopeless. Be patient with all. So you've got three types of people, obstinate. Those who are kind of in the middle, and sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative. They're optimists and they're they're pessimists. And then you've got those who are always Eeyore's. Everything is always going bad. And Paul says, as you deal with all personalities and all people, be patient with all. It's not easy. Let's be honest. Especially when you keep going back to the same issue over and over and over. But the expectation... Of those who will be used by God in the lives of other people, are they patient? They're not quick-tempered. Because they understand Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Him, Paul says, Christ that is. We admonish every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man mature in Christ. That is to say, we're looking at individuals, eternal souls, and therefore we care. Because that soul will either live forever in hell or in heaven. And if God brought that person in front of you in His providence, and you have an opportunity to shape that person's thinking about their situation in life, Paul says, treat that person as an individual, every man, patiently. Number three, back to Titus. The third expectation of Christian leaders is that they are not addicted to wine, verse 7. They are not alcoholics. Literally, they're not wine-oriented. They're not looking at wine. They're not thinking about wine. Their life orientation isn't about alcohol. Of course this forbids getting drunk. That's Ephesians 5:18 makes it very clear do not get drunk with wine. So the question here isn't so much as well can you be a little drunk or a lot of drunk or like what's what's appropriate how drunk can you be and still be a pastor? No you can't be drunk. Period. But if you look in the book of Proverbs there are multiple passages that talk about being careful and cautious in regard to alcohol. It says it's not for leaders. It's not for kings. In other words, those who make decisions that impact thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, be careful with alcohol. Because if you start making decisions that impact a lot of people and you're under the influence, you'll make bad decisions that don't just affect you, they affect other people. So there is a unique application in the book of Proverbs that targets leaders. The Bible doesn't forbid drinking, but it does say You have to be careful and recognize the role that you play and that should impact your relationship to wine or to other spirits, not demon spirits, spirits. So he says you're not addicted to wine. In other words, you don't have a drinking problem as our world is so obsessed with alcohol. And if you work in a secular field, you know that every weekend it's kind of the same for most people. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, right? I mean, let's be honest here. Certainly was when I was in the the corporate world. That's all people talked about, the last party they went to or the party they're going to and how much they can drink and they measure their tolerance level in meters and yardsticks and all that stuff. But the Bible says if you're a leader, that's not what your life is oriented toward. And I know that on this campus, there's, you know, a public... Um, expectation, I would say, Pastor John has preached on this topic many, many times. We're not a church that glories in alcohol, but there are churches like that. Going back to Mark Driscoll for just a second, he was known as the cussing pastor and the drinking pastor. I mean, if that's what the uh, CNN th- says about you and other news news reporters, they say, "Well, yeah, this is the drinking pastor. This is the cussing pastor." You understand what role alcohol plays in his life if that's the reputation you have built up over a period of time. And he's not the only one. There are, uh, sadly, other pastors who have fallen and have had issues with this. So Paul warns and says that's not the character of a true elder. And then he continues. You're not quick-tempered. You're not addicted to wine. You're not pugnacious. You're not a fighter. You're not a bully. Literally, you have your emotions under control. You're not violent. The smallest thing doesn't set you off. So Paul says, check yourself to make sure that you're not unnecessarily feisty. Let me say it that way. The next quality is you're not fond of sordid gain. Ministry is not about money. You're not in this ministry to make money, especially in the wrong way. Back to Second Peter, that same chapter that describes false teachers in verse one. He says this, Second Peter 2 1. False prophets arose among them, just there are also or will be also false teachers among you who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they'll exploit you. And then you look again at verse 14. They have eyes that are full of adul- adultery. That never ceases from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in greed. Isn't that wild? To actually characterize somebody that this person went to school to be greedy. They've trained their heart to be greedy and more greedy and more greedy and more greedy. Finding ways, perfecting the art of greed. That's what that means. They have their heart trained in greed. Because ministry is about service, not gain. That's what Paul says. It doesn't mean that you can't take the money that you get paid, if you're a pastor who's paid, and invest it. And use it wisely as a steward because God has given you that ability. The Bible doesn't forbid wise investments. But it does say, check your heart to make sure that you're in ministry as you serve people in the church to serve, not to gain from them. And of course, you should be thinking the charismatic the charismatic movement and how many people are abused in that movement and how many people are robbed through promises that they cannot experience. In Hebrews 13, 5, speaking to all believers, the author says, let your character be free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6 says, love, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Jesus says in Mark 12 and in Luke 16, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. So you have lots of discussions about money in the New Testament. And in 1 Timothy 6, just a couple pages to the left, in verse 7, Paul speaks to money and the love of it. And it says this, we brought nothing into this world, so First Timothy 6, 7, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destructions for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some of, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Griefs. Verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share to store up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So now speaking to all believers, Paul warns, make sure that your character and your pursuits and your desires and your ambition is free from the love of money because if that becomes your focus in life, you will experience temptation and you may fall into all sorts of evil. And if God blessed you with the ability to make money, Deuteronomy makes it very clear in chapter seven and in chapter eight, it is I, the Lord, who give you the power to make wealth. That's what God says. So if you are wealthy or 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you become wealthy, remember how that happened. And then Paul says, if that's who you are, instruct them, the ones who are rich, to not be conceited. Don't fix your hope on that. Instead, serve other people with your money. That's to all believers, especially to those who are leaders in the church. How do you do that? Paul moves from the list of no, 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 don't, 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 to not the positive. So verse 7 is the negative list, right? Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of certain gain. But we entered the positive list. And the first thing that he says, you guys, he could have said, make sure you do your devotions daily. Make sure you pray daily. Make sure you go to church every week. He doesn't say that. Why? Look at what he says. But be hospitable. That's a contrast to somebody who's obsessed with money. Because if you're hospitable, guess what? It will cost you, doesn't it? Cost us to be hospitable to people, to invite people and feed them and, or to take them out or to buy gifts for people. So there's this juxtaposition that happens from verses 7 to 8. Paul says, this is how you keep your heart free from the love of money, by using your money through hospitality. And this isn't just for those who are really, really good at events and serving other people and wrapping gifts very pretty. No, this is for elders. And it doesn't say only if you want to art school or only if you want to culinary school. It doesn't say that. It says every single elder in the church is to be characterized by hospitality. But lest you feel like, great, I never have to invite people to my house because I'm an introvert. I don't like people. I'd rather sit home alone. Then you have to rip out Hebrews chapter 13. Okay? Because... In Hebrews chapter 13, it says this in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For some by this have entertained angels without knowing it. That's referring back to Genesis 18. When Abraham entertained three angels that came to him. So hospitality is expected of all believers. Certainly expected of the elder in the church. And we do this because we are content with whatever God has given us. And we'll use that in the kingdom to serve other people. The next quality is you are to love what is good. You're a lover of good. You're inclined toward good. And of course, this continues the previous point. You want to do good to other people. Acts 10.38 says, Jesus went about doing good. Just a general statement. This is who Jesus was. He just went about doing good. Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all people. But especially in Titus, there's this unique focus, unlike elsewhere in the New Testament, on good deeds. Look at verse 16, for example. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and useless for any good deed. In chapter 2, verse 7, when Paul now speaks to the leaders in the church, specifically young men, but then he says, You, Titus, show yourself, verse 7, to be an example of good deeds. In verse 14 of chapter 2, He says, we are looking for the return of Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deed. Deeds, plural. Verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them, this is all people, remind them to be subject to the rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. In verse 8 of chapter 3. In the middle of the verse, he says, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. In verse 14, the very ending of the book, our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So there's a unique emphasis in the book of Titus on good deeds that characterize the Christian, all Christians. So when he says to the elders, you are an individual who loves what is good. Your mind, your heart, your tendency is to pursue good, good deeds. And then he extends that to everybody in the church. You guys, that's easily lived out by writing a card to somebody. Just a thank you card or a card of encouragement or give somebody a small gift. We're not talking about expensive gifts. He doesn't say make sure that you meet a th- certain threshold every single week in your relationships with people or in an annual donations. He just said, no, your desires are to do good to other people. And actually, the very last time he uses good deeds in 314, he actually says that Christians are leaders in doing good. We're the first ones doing that. If there's an opportunity, the Christian jumps up first to say, I want to do that. Well, back in chapter one, Paul continues and says, so we're hospitable. We're loving what is good. We're also sensible. We are to be sensible. This word will reappear multiple times in reference to older women. In chapter two, older men, younger women, younger men. It's something that Paul expects of everybody in chapter two, verse 12. Everybody is to live sensibly. But again, the standard is set by the leaders of the church. And so they are also to be sensible. Simply put, you are thoughtful in your behavior and in your speech. This actually means you always say and do what is appropriate for every situation. The simple application is you don't go to a funeral in shorts. The application, actually, of this word in the Greco-Roman world was you dress appropriately, you speak appropriately, you act appropriately. So there's this understanding that a Christian is a sensible individual. And the leaders of a church are sensible individuals. You do what is suitable for each occasion. That talks about joking. It speaks about your reflections with people, your conversations, what is appropriate in the group of people that you are speaking with. You probably change your demeanor if John MacArthur just walked in to my left and some of you looked <laughs> <laughs> or if the president walked in, I bet most of you would stand up, Right? Okay, the Democrats would stand up. <laughs> okay, let's pick you up for a fair president, man. That was a politically charged statement. <laughs> what? He's not welcome here. Is that what you said? <laughs> There's an understanding that certain people deserve a certain respect, right? And it's not because MacArthur is God. But there's a level of respect you give to an individual because of his age, because of his position. And so your demeanor changes. It has nothing to do with worship or an appropriate response to somebody. No, it has to do with suitability. You know, this is sensible in the moment to speak this way or to speak that way. If you are a a super serious person with all of your friends who are having a great time, that's not appropriate. That also is applicable to this verse. In other words, you do what makes sense in that moment. And you also pursue justice. That's the next word, next word in verse 8. You are a pious person, a just person. You do what is right all the time. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, referring to the elders, it says, You have a just reputation among the unbelievers. Because if the pastor of the church lacks integrity, if he's characterized by corruption and impurity and he's foul-mouthed, he has no self-control and he's immoral, what does that say about the church that he's leading and the standard that he's setting? And you will do what's right if your pursuit is of holiness. Verse 8, the word after just is devout in some of your translations, but that's the word for holiness. You are a holy individual. This word, it was used to describe somebody who was a worshiper of God. He was a holy worshiper of God. It speaks to inward and outward piety. It is the expectation of the people of God in the Old Testament. It means you have separated yourself to serve God. And thereby, you have separated yourself from the world from the influences of the world. In First Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul describes his commitment to the church in Thessalonica, he says this in verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly, there's your word, and uprightly, there's your second word, and blamelessly, there's the above reproach. We behave towards you believers. So now Paul says, I know I'm expecting just believers to be just and devout or holy, above reproach. But that's exactly how I acted in Thessalonica. He's speaking up the same vocabulary in order to demonstrate that I'm an example of this, which is why he's able to say in multiple places, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the standard. If I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. But as far as I'm imitating Christ, you are also to imitate me. And the next, Paul continues and says, these individuals, the leaders of the church, are self-controlled. They're disciplined. They don't have no excesses at all. There's not an excess toward one direction in life or another direction in life. And again, it goes back to the idea of having power over yourself. But then Galatians 5.23 makes that the last fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's the last thing on that list for every single believer to be characterized by. Pastor John wrote, if a man can't control himself when he's alone, he doesn't belong in a pastorate. And that's really where self-control is tested. It's not when MacArthur walks into the room. It's when you're alone at your house. It's when you're alone with your closest friends. And what does that life look like? What does that speech sound like? And, of course, it takes us into our thought life as well. Paul says, have self-control. That is the character of a spiritual leader. Hospitable, a lover of good, sensible, just, holy, and disciplined. And so, in 1 Timothy 4.16, charging now Timothy, Paul says, pay close attention to yourself, your life, your character, and to your teaching. Why? Because as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those listening to you. Within God's providence, our lives and our teaching does shape the thinking and the life of the people in front of us. And so you will ensure, you will give them confidence and assurance that they are on the right path towards the eternal life or they're not based on how they live their life and what they believe and how they respond to that belief and how you live your life and how you respond to what you believe. And so to Timothy, he says, pay attention, pay close attention, persevere in these things. Prioritize your life and your teaching. And that's what Paul does in Titus 1.9. After having this list of qualifications and character qualities, he says now in verse 9, The third category that I expect of every pastor, in addition to his family, in addition to his character, we're going to talk about doctrine. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. There's your doctrine discussion, what you know, what you believe, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So now there's two expectations in this category. You are holding on to the faithful word that is according to the teaching. The teaching that Titus received from Paul, is now holding fast to that message, the message of the cross, that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. And if they repent from their sin, they will be forgiven. And if they are forgiven of their sin, they now have a relationship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're now moving in a trajectory towards an eternal presence with God. But until then, they're going through the process of purification, the process of holiness or sanctification. And that's the process we just talked about in verses 6, 7, and 8. That's the process of holiness and sanctification. And at the end of that process, Jesus will greet us and say, well done, good and faithful servant or steward. Enter into the presence of your master. Until then, we're on on this journey. And in this period, between now and when we meet Jesus Christ face to face, Paul says, hold fast the faithful word that is according with the teaching. Hold on to the word of God. And the way Paul builds this word, he uses a preposition that's not necessarily that comes with this verb. It actually means in place of anything else, this is what you hold on to. So in other words, you've set aside all other things that you might hold on to. And you're going to hold on to the word of God. The teaching that you have received. From your pastor, from your Bible study leader, from your small group leader, for some spiritual leader in your life. And so Paul says, this is what should characterize you. You're grasping the word of God as if you're holding on for your life. And as a leader with that commitment, you will accomplish two things in the middle of verse 9. You'll be able to exhort in sound doctrine and you'll be able to refute those who contradict. John Calvin said, a pastor needs two voices, one to gather the sheep and one to drive away the wolves. That's the idea. There is false teaching out there. It's all over the place. And the pastor is supposed to protect the people God entrusted under his care and make sure they're taught the true word of God, the word that is faithful or reliable, as 2 Peter one nineteen calls it. We're holding on to this word because it's the sword of the spirit, right? Ephesians six seventeen. It's what we use to ultimately become more and more like Christ. It's what God uses in our lives to make us conform to the likeness of Christ. And uniquely, when Paul wrote Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, he didn't use a word that meant a massive sword. He actually used the word that meant a small sword a specialty tool, a sword that you would use in close combat. But the application, I think, here is you have a specialty knife for various purposes. You have a bread knife, you have a butter knife, you have a steak knife, and we use those different knives with a different purpose. So Paul, using a unique word from the Greek, he says, your relationship to the word of God isn't just going kind to of swing left and right and hope you hit something. Rather, you're holding on to it. You know it and you use it precisely like a specialty knife, whatever purpose that knife has. That's the imagery here. And so Paul says the kind of churches that will be churches characterized by Adorning the doctrine of God, chapter 2, verse 10, our Savior in everything, those churches have a unique type of a leader. And that leader is characterized by three specific qualities his family is in order, his character is in order, and he understands the Word of God. He holds on to it. We're not talking about perfection in any of those categories. The Bible doesn't expect perfection in this life. But we are talking about a direction of your life. The pursuit towards the perfection of those qualities. So the moment that you see Christ face to face, the transformation that final phase, the change that has to still take place to be just like Jesus, is minimized. Because your whole life was committed to pursuing Christ's likeness in those categories. And as you get closer and closer and closer and closer to Him and to be like Him, when you actually do meet Him, that final change, you could even say it's instantaneous. All that is within the providence of God. All that is contingent upon how long you live and who you, who, what church do you go to and who shapes your life. There's so many variables, but the goal is the same. God uses the Word of God to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And the list that we just talked about, yes, it starts with pastors and elders, but it's expected of every single believer. Therefore, I'm going to ask you for the next 10 minutes to talk about it. Find ways to apply it to your current situation in life. What are the areas that you might have seen? You know, I need to kind of reflect on that a little bit more. Be as open as you want to be. Just don't drive people away with your transparency. Okay? <laughs> I hope nobody scatters after your conversations. Let me pray for us. You guys will talk for 10 minutes. We'll come back and close with a song. Lord God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that you are the God we trust, the God whose word we believe and thereby live and orient our lives around. We thank you for the elders who started this church, the pastors who started it in 1956 and for giving Pastor John to this church in 1969. And that you've kept him faithful for almost 54, 55 years. So thank you that he's an example of what we talked about. And there are so many others on this campus, like John Scott and Chris Hamilton, and so many other elders who are not in this group, and so many other individuals who are deacons and spiritual leaders that shape us and teach us. And of course, that applies to women leaders in this church who are also pursuing Christ's likeness and they're shaping nearly a thousand women in every woman's grace every Wednesday, encouraging them to be like Christ. We thank you for those people who have disciplined their lives to become examples of what we just talked about. And we pray that we will also be those individuals in the lives of others, that we will imitate Christ And people will imitate us because we imitate Christ. And until that day, when we see Christ and become like Him, keep us faithful. Amen.